While I was sitting down and recording, or I should say streaming, the live rumination of Darksiders 1, I got one person who came in and made this comment that amused me. They were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're playing Darksiders for the story? Well, yeah. Uh, don't mistake me. I do actually enjoy playing Darksiders. In fact, I do have a couple of things to talk about gameplay-wise before I go into the story itself. I thought about really covering the collapse of THQ and all that, but... Honestly, that's not really all that relevant to Darksiders 1, because Darksiders 1 was pretty much already set and ready to go prior to the major disaster of the sinking of the ship USS THQ. So, not really a lot to, to add about that, although I will say that A, it's a damn shame that we didn't get the proper layout of all five games like was originally intended, B, I do think Darksiders 2 is a really good game, although it's obviously rushed in several aspects. And, of course, Darksiders 2 really fleshed out the lore considerably more than Darksiders 1 did. And C, I'm very happy that we're getting Darksiders 3, and I fully plan to do a premiere run of Darksiders 3 when it comes out. Now that I've said all that, I do also want to say that... Uh, <sighs> Gameplay-wise... Obviously, everyone in their world, everyone in the world has said the same thing. I, I had like 20 separate people during my streaming of Darksiders 1 come on and all say, this is like God of War and Zelda, or this is like the Zelda of God of War. And we kind of turned it into a joke of the, this is the Dark Souls of Zelda games or something like that. You, you, know the, you, you know the old joke, this is the Dark Souls of Dark Souls. But um, the, I, I have to say, as I was playing it, I found myself in a weird position I found myself thinking like I was playing God of War 3 with the Oracle of Ages slash Oracle of Seasons games. To those specific games from each category that I was playing. Because in terms of combat, it feels very, uh, you know, spectacle fighter-y, very, you know, God of War-y, whatever that genre is actually supposed to be called. I usually just refer to it as spectacle fighter because I'm a weirdo. You know, it's not quite to the level of, say, Bayonetta or Devil May Cry, but still leaning in that direction, that kind of a thing. But it's not quite all the way there, if that makes any sense. Like, it's more of a... I don't want to say beginners, because that sounds like I'm insulting, and that's not what I want. But more of like a... a, a light version. L-I-T-E. A light version of the God of War combat. That's kind of what it felt like going through Darksiders 1. And as for the Zelda thing, well, I specifically lean towards the Oracle games because if you'll remember my rumination of those, and I don't blame you if you don't, the Oracle games used a unique approach to their design. Most Zelda games have distinct differences between town, overworld, dungeon. You know, very three distinct styles of gameplay going throughout it. There's the town, where you run around, talk to people, buy stuff. You know, it's almost un universally story-focused. Cutscenes tend to happen there. You know, that kind of... There's, there's only a few minor puzzles. Overworld, which is all about exploring and finding random stuff. And this goes all the way back to the original Zelda as well, with the overworld distinction. And then dungeons, which are pretty much puzzle, 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 puzzle. And some combat and some bosses, right? Same... The Oracles games didn't feel like that because the there was no town. Well, I mean, there was a town. But there was no big distinction between overworld and dungeon. The whole game was effectively a dungeon in terms of design. Because every screen was effectively a puzzle in its own right that had to be solved in order to progress, the same as in a dungeon. 
And that's how this game feels. Rather, as I was playing through it, I got about to the halfway point, and I started to realize where the distinction really came in. Because the the puzzle design of the overworld, because there's no true overworld in Darksiders, but you know, the, the puzzle design of overworld of the overworld is more combat-leaning. I found far more enemies and far more, you know, spawn points where a barrier shows up and you just have to kill your way through it on the overworld sections than when you hit the actual proper dungeon sections for each of the chosen when you have to actually fight your way through those guys. And that's the distinction, you know, far more puzzle-based. You know, when I get... Uh, the perfect example of this is... The, is uh... Oh, God, I can't think of her name all of a sudden. The second chosen, the big spider-looking... Or not the spider, that's the fourth one. The, the crab-looking thing. I can't think of her damn name. Um, uh, but the second chosen that you fight, she has no lines of dialogue, so I don't have much to say about her. But the second chosen you fight, her dungeon with the old abandoned subway railway area, that was like suddenly they took the puzzle focus and just cranked it up to 11. It's like, here, just puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. I don't mind that, by the way. Quite the contrary. I think that's actually one of the reasons I still like this game so much. And I think that helps to differentiate it from your standard Zelda formula. Because in Darksiders, it's basically, die, die, die. But if it was all combat-focused, to be blunt, it would get a little boring. Because the combat is just not that complicated. I mean, yes, there's sub-weapons, and yes, there's quite a few RPG elements with regards to upgrading, and special abilities, and combo moves you can buy, and all that fun stuff. You know, you talk God of War style thing. But if it's just combat, 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 that gets old after a bit. But instead, it's more like combat, 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 puzzle, 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 combat, combat, combat. And it keeps that kind of flow. And almost every puzzle section has either absolutely no combat whatsoever or just a couple of little guys that are in the distance. And you kill them just to get them out of your way, and then you go back to the puzzle. You know, that kind of a thing. And then there's a boss! And each of the boss battles was pretty good and very enjoyable as well. If anything, I was reminded just a little bit more of Metroid than I was of Zelda as I was going through this. This isn't a true Metroidvania. It doesn't follow the, the, the tropes and styles of a Metroidvania. But I was reminded of that in terms of tone. Especially since this is a very dark game. Oh, which I suppose is a good time as I need to talk about that. So this is a, a weirdly dark game because it's like Warhammer 40k if it wasn't taking itself seriously. I mean, there's monsters and demons and, and undead people and, and, and billions of people have been killed. We find out in Darksiders 2 that all their souls are in the well of souls and all that, but, but for this game it's just everyone's dead and the apocalypse has happened and, and your main sword has wailing skulls on it and the stuff used to climb around is literally just pustulant flesh that has bodies coming out of it. It's, it's all this stuff that would be horrifying and gross, if not for the fact that the whole game has this sort of tongue-in-cheek nature to it. Like, at no point did I feel like the game was taking itself too seriously, which would have pulled me out of the entire experience. And instead, I'm going through it, and I'm like, yeah, because it's just, yeah, let's go. <laughs> like, the moment you meet Ulthane is a great example, and he's just like, hey, what can I do for you, lad? You know, it's like, oh, my God, that's awesome. And then it, it turns into, and so you encounter him, and rather than this being this grim, dark, you know, horrible examination of, of the guilt that we carry and, and I need your help to all that bunch of stuff. Instead, uh, War, who is surprisingly perceptive of a character, figures out immediately, oh, so you're the hammer. And he says, oh, let's, let's have a contest. <laughs> let's see who can kill the most angels. Okay. You know, tongue-in-cheek. It, 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 despite having the, the, the skin of a very dark, horrible, disgusting game, 
and a dog. Uh, she's probably going to keep barking. I apologize. Nothing I can do about that. Uh, so despite having the skin of such a uh, format, instead, it has the tone of just an adventure. Yeah, let's go, you know? And I think that was a good move on their part. I think this would be just another grimdark, frankly kind of boring series, if not for that overall tone of light adventure that's going throughout it. This is true in Darksiders 2 as well, by the way. Although Darksiders 2 is more snarky, whereas this one is more... Ha! <laughs> okay. Yeah, alright. Let's, let's, let's destroy everything in our path. You know, kind of a thing. Now... I mentioned, so I actually don't have much else to say about the combat. I mean, it's good. I would definitely, let me make this clear, I do absolutely recommend this game. It is a great game. Um, you can get it for super cheap nowadays. I can't say this is a truly phenomenal game. I think Darksiders 2 is a better game, and I do think that there are better games of this type. You know, God of War 2 is my go-to example for a game that is truly amazing in terms of its dungeon design, its aesthetic, its story, its combat. But this is still a great game, and I highly recommend it. So this is this is consider this your recommendation to go pick this game up before I go ahead and start spoiling the hell out of the story. This is your last chance. Three, two, one. Now, <clears throat> discussing this is going to take a moment because a lot of the lore of Darksiders One is not actually in, or is very towards the end of the game. And now this is the weird one they more or less deliberately misrepresent several aspects of it. For example, I actually know a few people and a couple of reviewers who, having played just Darksiders 1, assumed that the Destroyer was the ruler of hell, which is actually not true at all. The Destroyer is basically the vassal lord of the Third Kingdom, the Kingdom of Man, Earth. And that's it. But the way the game presents that, you wouldn't really think of that. They keep talking... The, the way they use that term, the Destroyer, the way they consider it, the way they phrase it, makes it sound like he is the actual leader of Hell's forces when he is not. And that makes more sense in hindsight, given the fact that we know who the Destroyer is. This is your last chance for spoilers, because the Destroyer is frickin' Abaddon, right? It makes sense that it, uh, it wouldn't make sense, I should say, if he was the ruler of Hell, since his entire goal walking into this was ending the war by permanently defeating Hell. And I think that's the thing I find most amusing about the plot of Darksiders 1. Because it's a plot, it, I should say it's a, a conspiracy or, or a plan or whatever, you know, with, with another conspiracy on top of that, with a third conspiracy on top of that. Th this is basically the description of the plot here, right? So Abaddon is like, okay, we must end this war, we must go forth, and, and, and we're going to... And he goes through all this crap. He's going to deliberately break all but one of the seals so that, you know, they think that it's time for the end times. Hell attacks early, unprepared, but they're already ready for hell. So they go back and defeat hell and have this final victory. But because they reforged the seals, you know, no, nobody knows that anybody actually did anything with regards to the seals. So everyone thinks it's just hell broke the pact, therefore basically artificially creating a casus belli to attack hell's forces. So that's the first plot. The second plot is on top of that. This is Lilith's, because Lilith has been working with you-know-who. They actually never name him in both games. Do you, do you, can you believe that? They actually refer to him as the Dark Prince in, in any time he's referenced in both of the first two games. Just find that funny. Anyways, 
So Lilith, on behalf of you-know-who, is like, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and be ready for this, and I'm going to get all my forces ready for an all-out invasion, because what she wants is to use his attempt in order to capture him, bring him into their fold, and, and basically pull off the exact same thing he wanted to do in reverse. So this way, Hell will have the Third Kingdom, and therefore have a new... Uh, launching off point of their war and this grand new army which they'll be able to use in order to go after heaven, right? With the billions of souls from humanity, right? Make sense? So that's the second plot. So she outmaneuvers him, but then the council has the third plot and they're like, okay, um, this isn't cool, but we can't just send... Now, I don't actually fully understand this. I think this is a little bit of a excuse right here. But for whatever reason, the council decided they can't just send the four horsemen to wreck Abaddon as soon as they find out about his plot. The statement that's given is that they don't want them to be executioners. They want them to, to lay down judgment. But I'm, I'm really, I really don't get the distinction there. Maybe this is some political thing. There's a surprising amount of politics going through the Dark Seder series, believe it or not. So, okay. Fine, we can't send down, you know, the, the, the four horsemen, so why don't we trick them? So they summon just war and send him down there. If you remember, Abaddon was like, what are you doing here? Because he shouldn't have been there. He specifically had Ulthane reseal the seals so that war wouldn't show up. So war shows up. It's like, ha ha ha! Oh, hello. Uh, this is his, where's my brothers? You know, everyone's confused as hell. War doesn't realize he's been summoned solo. Abaddon doesn't understand why he's been summoned at all. So War's just like, I guess I'll just start killing people, whatever. But uh, War is summoned solo. Hell claims victory over the Third Kingdom. And then the Council says, this is your fault, War. They don't tell him that they summoned him. They just say, this is your fault. Now... Every one of the horsemen, well, at least from what we've seen so far, is not exactly good people. But every one of them has one redeeming trait. With death, it's actually his, uh, his loyalty. You know, his loyalty to war being the big one, but his loyalty to his brethren in general. He's mentioned several times. War's big redeeming trait, uh, aside from the fact that he's actually surprisingly perceptive and intelligent, is the fact that he is honorable. So in order to, you know, he has been accused of something of which he is innocent. And he will go to whatever lengths necessary to prevent that from being a stain on his record. It is important to him, thanks to how much he cares about his honor and being honorable, that he maintains his clean record. So he's like, I will fix this. And I will ensure that the people who are responsible for this atrocity are punished. Now, that's kind of the trick. You'd think the council would think this through, but I think the council didn't realize the kind of forces they were dealing with here. And the end of this game and the second game and the overall arc of where the story is going makes it clear the council just made their best weapon because the council is the one basically behind this. I mean, yes, Abaddon is behind it and Lilith is behind it, but the council, as I mentioned, was behind the third plot. They framed him. <laughs> And war, you have to keep something in mind. As we're playing throughout this entire game, we're playing a powered-down war. As we are wrecking scores of demons and uh, abyssal creatures, which I'll talk about the distinction between hell and the abyss in a minute, uh, we are the weaker version of ourselves. And it's logically you know, pulled down for gameplay purposes, of course. But I point that out because we're already wrecking face. 
And at the end of the game, our power is unleashed. We're no longer limited. The, 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 the governor is taken off of our drive. So, good job, council! Although, in fairness, if Uriel hadn't played ball, that wouldn't have happened. But I, I shrug. It, it is amusing to me tre tremendously. <clears throat> so, now we have a war and a death, actually. And probably the other two, based on how the story is most likely going to go that are very, have a vested interest in wrecking the council, and hell, and heaven. I don't know about you, but that sounds awesome to me. And that, that's something I'm very much looking forward to, if it's ever made. I really hope the third game's good enough to make the fourth and fifth. We'll see, we'll see. Um, so I mentioned uh, the Abyss thing. Let's talk a little bit of backstory here. I'm kind of just going through. I don't have a lot to really discuss. I find the politics of this game fascinating and the, the mythos of it. So we've got the three major kingdoms. Let's start with that. The Kingdom of Heaven, or er, yes, Kingdom of Heaven is, is the first kingdom. Kingdom of Hell is the second kingdom. And the Kingdom of Man is the third kingdom. There's actually two, three, well, there's no other kingdoms. These are the three pinnacles of creation. But there are other planets and there are other forces out in the world. The Nephilim, which is what we are a member of as the Four Horsemen, were a force that actually has some contradictory lore as far as its origin. But let's ignore the contradictions. I'm pretty sure most of the contradictions in lore, which are usually nitpicky stuff like ages of certain individuals. Like, for example, they mention uh, that Abaddon outpaces the, the origin of the Nephilim, but later on they mention that the Nephilim are actually around since the beginning. But then they mention that Lilith created the Nephilim and blah, 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 blah. So... I'm pretty sure that's all just due to the fact that they were kind of rushing, especially when it came to Darksiders 2. Remember, Darksiders 2 was made pretty much right when THQ was self-destructing, so getting the game out the door was a big priority. So I'm willing to forgive that. But from what we understand, the Nephilim were basically crafted by Lilith. I'm not sure why, other than the fact that she was just kind of doing her own thing. It's possible she was doing so as an attempt, as a first attempt, or a 50th attempt, or whatever. A previous attempt to make that grand army of the Republic, I mean, of hell, in order to please her master, the Dark Prince, he, he, he who shall not be named, <laughs> in, order to, uh, in order to sweep heaven and conquer creation. <laughs> so, that makes sense. But, so the Nephilim are another force that was involved. Uh, I'm not going to go more into their story. That's mostly relevant to Darksiders 2. All you need to know is that four of the Nephilim decided to work for the Council, received even further empowerment than they already had, because they were already really strong. And those four Nephilim are the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. And those are the ones who betray and kill the rest of the Nephilim, trapping their souls within Death's Amulet. Again, relevant for the second game. And that leads to uh, them being agents of the Chart Council. Now, when you go to the Chart Council, I pointed this out on the live stream, there's a distinction between Hell and two other things, both of which look a lot like Hell. The Chart Council are in this big, molten-y, volcanic... But they're not, that's not Hell. I can't tell you how many people I know who played this game and thought they were in Hell talking to the Chart Council, but they're not. Now, it's obvious why you'd think that. I, I, I'm not you know, calling anybody stupid. It's just interesting they chose imagery that so clearly invokes hellish when they came to these people who are supposed to be completely neutral. 
I actually wonder, and I speculate, if that is a deliberate bit of foreshadowing. Like, the obviousness, and then, oh, it's actually not that. But then an unreveal in the fact that they are actually working on Hell's side, or they're just puppets of, you know, the Dark Prince, or whatever. Something along those lines. I'm not sure. I can only speculate on that. And who knows if we ever even get an answer to this question. But all we know right now is that the Tard Council, we, we know very little about them. They're the Council of Creation. Uh, apparently agent, uh, people who were agents of the creator himself, who is long gone. The creator has left creation, isn't doing anything, and hasn't been doing anything for a long time. And they enforce what they call the balance. Now, originally there were these group called the Makers. Now, the Makers, I love the inclusion of the Makers into this for the same general reason I like the game Age of Mythology. It takes multiple different mythos from real life and kind of mixes them together in a way that makes sense. The makers are basically Norse. Norse mythology. You know, dwarven kind of a thing going on. Uh, in the more classical sense, not in the more, you know, Tolkien kind of a sense. And so these, the maker races are the people who would f make buildings, make planets, make kingdoms, you know, all, almost... I'm, in fact, I recall reading something somewhere, and I'm not, again, I can't say with 100% certainty this is true, but that the Makers were the ones who actually built the First and Second Kingdoms, a.k.a. the Makers built Heaven and Hell. Which I like that idea, personally. There's also something about this place they made called Eden. Now, Eden was supposed to be the place for this new race, mankind, and the original intent was mankind was going to be the tipping point. You know, if you have balance... If you have one and one, you can have balance. If you have three, well, under certain geometric circumstances, you can have a balance between three, like a triangle. But the idea was that with a third inclusion, we would be able to finally decide you know, the, the, where things would lean, whether it would lean towards heaven or hell or whatever. That was always the intent with the third kingdom, with mankind. But So the first obstacle was that when mankind was put into Eden, uh, the Nephilim are like, Dude, why do they get a kingdom and we don't? We need our... We deserve a kingdom. Go! Crush! It's emphasized that the Nephilim were really, really bad. Like, worse than hell. Kind of bad. Hell is portrayed... Hell and heaven, I should say. Neither hell nor heaven are good, by the way. Hell is... Uh, if I was to use Kingdom Hearts terms, hell would be the heartless and heaven would be the nobodies. But for those of you who don't understand what I mean by that... Hell is far more about emotions and raw bestial instinct. Acting out, raw. most of the hellish uh, minions or lords are literally just large bestial-looking creatures which barely bother to think or function. They just charge through and destroy. Heaven has technology and tools and the trappings of a civilization, but the same general leaning. In fact, if anything, heaven is more militaristic and more warlike than hell is. Hell is all about... Heaven is all about... For the Emperor! Yes, deliberate reference. I'm sorry, I hate to keep referencing this game to Warhammer 40k, but if you think about it, Heaven is basically the Space Marines. I, I don't mean that as like an insult, by the way. Just that same tone. The militant fanatic kind of thing that they've got going on there. And I kind of like that. So anyway, so the Nephilim were worse than either side. They were just absolutely destructive and just horrifying to, uh, kind of a thing. So they went after Eden. 
And that's when the Four Horsemen decided to betray the rest of the Nephilim. We're not actually sure what happened with Eden after that. They don't really cover that. But either way, they're like, okay, okay, Eden's wrecked. We need to make a new third kingdom. So the makers make this third new kingdom, and that is Earth. And the whole idea was, we all agree, the council basically just lays down the law. We've got this new pact. We've got these seven seals, which are literally physical objects that we're going to craft. As long as these seven seals are active, truce. No all-out war between heaven and hell until the third kingdom, mankind, is developed enough to influence the war. You know, a bunch of people with sticks aren't really going to influence a war between giant monsters and people with wings and guns. You know what I mean? You know, again, the Warhammer 40k uh, Space Marine kind of a thing. So, they everyone was went with this truce. Now, I say truce. I really should just say a lack of all-out war. There's still conflict. There's still fighting between the two sides. So that leads to Ab uh, Abaddon. I told you I'd, <laughs> I'd bring it around at some point. This is why Abaddon hatches his initial plot. Because Abaddon believes that hell is just prepping their forces, getting stronger. We need to do something about this. We need to get down there and we need to fight them. We need to stop them while we still have a chance to do so. And that's how he convinces uh, Azrael and uh, Ulthane in order to go along with his plot. We need to strike at hell while they are unprepared. Now the problem is hell A was prepared, as I already mentioned with regards to this whole second layer of the trap, but B... Hell has been spending this entire time prepping for, you know, having a greater army. They have been doing the smart thing. You ever play EU4 or Civ 5 or anything like that? When you stop being at war, but you intend to go back to being at war, what do you do? Well, you sit down and you build up and you build up and you get more troops and you get more infrastructure so that when you go back to war, you're even more prepared than you would have been. And that's exactly what Hell's been doing. Hell has also been working on taming abyssal creatures. I mentioned I mentioned that earlier. So there's a fifth, I think, at this point, eighth location called the Abyss. Horrible, destructive, chaotic place. It's pretty much the D and D version of the Abyss. You know, from Faerun, for example. But the Abyss is where all where might makes right, and everything from there is generally individually stronger than like an angel or a demon. But there's no organization, there's no tiers of power or like army of the abyss, it's just a whole bunch of random creatures. So Hell has been working on taming these creatures and bringing them into the fold one by one. And that leads to the, the four, actually excuse me, the five chosen that you fight in this game, all of which are actually abyssal creatures and all of which are slaved to the destroyer, aka Abaddon, when Abaddon is pulled into this plot. Now this is one thing I want to comment on, because I like the idea that Abaddon is a coward. I mean, I, I know I know that war flat out calls him a coward. But the trap that Lilith lays for him is brilliant. Because Abaddon does all this not out of a desire for glory or power or any selfish intent whatsoever. He does this because he is a zealot who genuinely believes that he is doing what is right. And he is outmaneuvered. And so Lilith basically flat out says, so here's your options. You can go back to heaven, and they will try and convict you for breaking the rules, because he did, and probably execute you, or you can stay here and become my new vassal lord. So he chooses to be the vassal lord. And that's why I call him a coward. Because for all of his zealotry and for all his belief that what he was doing was right, he betrays all of that. And that's why Abaddon is the exact opposite of war. Abaddon, in the face of self-termination and all of that, 
flings everything that he cares about, all his beliefs, all his crusade, all of his sense of right or moral obligation or duty or valor or honor, and tosses it out the window and says, fine, I will rule in hell. And thus war, sir, war, whose only true redeeming trait is his honor, his sense of doing what he believes to be right, even in the face of that being you know, cast upon him by whatever's around him, war is the one who says, no, I will do, I will choose what once a coward could not. I will choose to serve in heaven rather than rule in hell. And then he beats the crap out of Abaddon, and then Uriel actually kills him. Love that, love that thing, that back and forth there. A couple other thoughts before I really move on. Uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of chop this off soon, especially since I'm sure the white noise is getting bad. I apologize, nothing I can do about it. Um, so, I, I really want to know more about this series, this setting. Uh, again, Darksiders 2 does a lot more to flesh out the setting than Darksiders 1 did. But there's two things that I find really interesting about Darksiders 1's setting to comment on. First is Samael. Now, he's been built up quite a bit throughout the course of the series. He is in both games. He's in the comics as well, if I'm not mistaken. And he is a character who is mentioned as someone who basically could be ruling right now, except he isn't. He was, in fact, chained in the, uh, prior to the first game because he took opposition. He, he took umbrage at the idea that Abaddon was given the title of Destroyer and allowed you know, the vassal lordship over the Third Kingdom when it should have gone to him. Or the title of Dark Prince should have gone to him. And it's mentioned that he is very, very strong, and it's implied, I shouldn't say implied, it is basically stated outright in both games, that he has the ability to just perceive. Like, his, he is almost omniscient in the fact that he can just see things happening and perceive things happening even when he is still imprisoned or trapped or out of time, for that matter. And that's pretty impressive in its own right, and I really hope they do something with Samael. Uh, I do, the only thing I can speculate with regards to him is the fact that his wings are upside down. And I know that's a really minor thing to comment on, but he, if you look at him, he is the archetypal example of what a demon would look like in modern, you know, in modern visual style. I think Samael is actually the guy who is the fallen angel and not the current dark prince. And I think Samael is the one who's going to end up taking over Hell, as, as has been hinted at many times, supplanting whoever the current Dark Prince is. It would be interesting, since he has actively helped two uh, horsemen of the Apocalypse thus far, done so for his own purposes, of course, but he has gone out of his way to help them. And I wonder if that's a little bit of politicking on his part. Unlike the Council, he recognizes the potential threat that they could pose and probably wants them at least positively inclined towards him rather than the opposite. But this is just speculation, and I don't really know where, where they're going with that. final thing I want to comment on is the idea of... Obviously, a lot of this game pulls directly, even, from standard mythos, Christian mythos, or mythos, excuse me, and, uh, and some North mythos as well, as I mentioned. I just wanted to toss out an idea that's been speculated before. Uh, is If you think it would be interesting if in future games they explore additional mythos, uh, adding them into the fold, you know, uh, uh, Middle Eastern, or, excuse me, not Middle Eastern, Eastern mythos, for example, or Islamic, or uh, you know, something along the lines of Egyptian, for example. Something like the Age of Mythology thing that they did already back in that excellent, excellent game that I also recommend. I'm not sure what else I have to add other than that 
little tiny bit of speculation. As ever, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this, and I apologize for the white noise again, and I hope to see you guys next time.